You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax. And I'm Micah Hahn. And we are the hosts of this monthly, yep, you guessed it, politics and pop culture <laughs> podcast. Uh, but before we get into educating you about the latest political and pop culture situations, Micah, how has your month of August 2020 been? It's been as good as it can be, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds nice yeah. and positive. It was, um, I, I got to go to the beach, which was really mm-hmm. nice. Um, I I went to the beach too. Yeah, there we go. Exciting times. Ooh, the most exciting thing that happened was I cut all my hair off, or not all of it, a lot of it. You guys Um, can't see, but Micah and I are on a uh, video call right now, and I can see the hair, and it's very cute. Thank you. Um, Very short. I got. I was very happy that I decided to support a local business and get them to cut my hair off. Um, So that was. Was it a mask situation while you were in there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Everyone wore masks. There weren't a lot of people in there. It felt very safe, which was nice. So, all good. How was your August? Good. Um, my big thing was that I did go to the beach. I said I would do that last month for you guys, and I did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got sunburnt. You got a little sunburn, right? I did. I got a like a tiny little strip of um, sunburn underneath my top because I forgot sunscreen just in that little, little spot. Mm-hmm. Now I have a really nice line across the back. Which Love is, that. Yeah. Love that. I wish I could say mine was as small and elegant, but <laughs> unfortunately I fell asleep a little bit in the sun. And when I woke up, my pretty much my entire back um was mm. burned in like the shape of my swimsuit. So there's still some very pale areas. Um and then some very pink areas. So it's not my best work. I'm extremely sun conscious at all times. So I'm very mm-hmm. upset that I let this happen. Um, but, you know, I'm working on forgiveness. I'm working on self-love. I'm working on moisturizing. So we'll recover. And mm-hmm. I will beat you again one day. I will beat you again. Um, have you been reading anything in August? I have. I've kind of, you know, those months where you like pick up a bunch of books but never finish anything. Um, um, you not finishing because you didn't like them, or I because they're all ongoing. Like the mood changed, um, right. so I never, I didn't finish a single book. I start, I read a lot, didn't finish anything, mm-hmm. but I did want to talk about um, a collection of essays um, that I've started, which is called "The Fire This Time: A New Generation Speaks on Race," and it's collected Ooh. by um, Jasmine Ward. So. This is a collection that came out in 2016, um, and it's kind of a response to post-Ferguson America, um, but it's framed in conversation with James Baldwin's famous book, The Fire Next Time. I was going to say, the title sounded very Mm -hmm. familiar. Um, And so it kind of, it has a, part of it is like this response to James Baldwin, part of it is this um, reckoning with... um, what it means, like what the situation is now. Um, and the introduction was really interesting because Jasmine Ward talks about how she kind of envisioned there'd be a whole section about imagining the future. And she found that to actually be lacking. Um, most of the authors who contributed wanted to talk about the past and the present, mm-hmm. but weren't in the space to talk about the future, I guess, which I think is interesting 
now, given that, like, in some ways, prison abolition is just about the future. It is about what does the world look like without yeah. prisons. Um, and I don't think those conversations, obviously, they were happening and they've been happening for many, many decades, but they weren't happening in the same way that they're happening now, um, post June 2020. Um, mm. And so I think the book is really, it feels dated, even though it's only four years old. Um, but it also feels like it, it's still the same, like people who are writing now. Um, and still oh, obviously cool. is the history. Um, yeah. And you'll like see authors that you know if you've been uh-huh. trying to keep up with the reading. So um, I'm really liking it so far. I have like the like 10, 15 essays that I've read. I'm really excited to finish it. Oh, so it's like so. a lot of essays. Oh, yeah. It's a, they're all like, like some of them are like two pages and some of them okay. are like 15. I wish I could say that I read something as intellectual <laughs> and culturally important this month. But um, again, last month I made a promise that I would talk about something on this podcast. And here I am. I'm here to let you know that I read Midnight Sun, uh, Stephanie Meyer's latest addition to the Twilight Saga. Uh, this is actually Twilight as told from <laughs> Edward's perspective. So um, an interesting project because, yeah, essentially just rewriting an existing story, like just copying and pasting dialogue and the like. Um, so, yeah, uh, also much chunkier as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really looking forward to this one because if you remember, like Bella and Edward are not together all the time. Um, especially at the beginning of the Twilight book and movie. So I was kind of expecting a lot of scenes where Edward is like off doing something completely different and it's really like exciting and adds new meaning to the original story. Um, but not so much. Like there's not a lot of those scenes. Um, the extra pages are actually really from like just things that Edward is thinking and things that he notices and a lot of it's just him being anguished. But um <laughs> There are, like, some interesting things that he thinks and notices that um, really took me by surprise and definitely do add new meaning. But I guess that does beg the question of why was none of this mentioned in Twilight? You know, there's some pretty (laughs) crucial things um, that happened in the original story. And I I, I feel like if Edward had this information, he would have mentioned it because it would have been very helpful. Uh, So it's... um, it's an odd one. If you would like to hear me discuss it more, you will have to join my Twilight Book Club. You can uh, contact me on Instagram at Yasmin Lomax and I will let you into it. It is a very fun place to be and we will be discussing Midnight Sun very soon once we can all force ourselves to slog through the 600 or so pages of um, Edward worrying that he's going to kill Bella. <laughs> but we'll get there we'll get there uh watching have you been able to finish watching oh i've watched a lot of things Uh uh um i would like to talk about two things both american politics related both Mm -hmm. movies um the first one um is american made um which is loosely based on the life of Barry Seal, who um, worked for the CIA to expand their reach in South America and in the process gets very rich because um, he starts working Ooh. with the drug cartels. Um, Ooh. Yes. Um, so this is all one of, one of the many moving parts of the Iran-Contra scandal um, where 
um, the American government sold weapons to Iran through Israel and took the profits of that money to fund the Contras who were trying to overthrow their government in South America, um, failed. Um, but it was a big scandal because the Congress had said that they couldn't actually fund the Contras. And so they were, the government was trying, the CIA was trying to figure out a way to get around this. Anyways, big, big Cold War shenanigans. complex. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it stars Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise is a recent movie? Uh, it came out in like 2018, something like oh, that, okay. kind of recent, yeah. Um, and it, it's just it's just kind of like an adventure of a movie. Um, there's some like ridiculous shit that happens as he like tries to get this like plane that's like weighed full. He's a pilot and so he's trying to get this plane that's like full of cocaine, like out of this abandoned like um, farm that like barely has a runway and like there's a scene where he has so much money that he doesn't know what to do with it. And it's just oh, like four minutes do? of them trying to figure out where to put the cash. Um, it's a, that's a great bit in movies that is just wonderful. So yeah, it's just fun. And like, I just, it's kind of a, a lot, but it's also kind of a distraction from the world. If you want a movie that is very entertaining, very interesting, but not a distraction from our world at all, um, I would recommend Boys State. Oh, I really want to see this. I've mm. seen the the trailer on like there's like Hulu ads for it, but it's on Apple TV. It's right? on Apple TV, yeah. Um, it's a documentary and on Apple TV. Maybe the only good thing on Apple TV, unclear. Um, but basically, Boys State is. Um, I, as a Canadian, had no clue this existed, but like think of like Model UN, but it's for like the state election process. Um, except it's seventeen-year-old boys, and in this case, it's the Texas boys' state, and it's during the Trump presidency. Um, so basically, the American Legion um, across the country organizes boy state and girl state. They do not get to mix. Um, and it's like mock elections. There's no real governing that happens. Um, mostly they just do elections. Um, yeah. And a lot of like really important political figures in America have been through this. So Clinton, um, Newt Gingrich, Clinton, Bill Clinton, um, uh, Cory Booker, like a lot of like from diverse political backgrounds have been to Boy State. And so the documentary follows um, like four to five boys um, who go through this process um, and it's in Texas. So like you get, I, I was surprised that not all of the boys were white um, and you get these really interesting stories of like, there's this kind of divide of like the city kids who like are overwhelmingly um, boys of color and then the country kids who are like mm. deep Republicans? Because um, I and, assume this is like set in Austin, right? Because yes. that's where the the, the state mm -hmm. house and the state capital is. So they like get to go yeah. into the state house building and like do all this stuff, um, right? Yeah, and, and obviously, like, like Austin's a very diverse and progressive mm -hmm. city, so that would definitely stand in contrast to other parts of the state. Yes, um, like one of the the kid who like takes my heart is named Stephen Garza, and he. Um, like is a huge Beto supporter. He goes to the first day Aww. in a Beto shirt, which is a move. Um, 
and he like organized March for Our Lives in his city and like very progressive guy. And um, yeah, I just part of, I think a lot of us like right now want to watch gentle things. Um, and so I was kind of hesitant to watch it because I didn't know if I wanted my break time to be dominated by political fights. Like it's just like a lot of our existence is that right now. But and I this found- was definitely like the wildest version of this yes. they could have filmed, right? Like it's because not- it's theatrical. Like it's just boys yeah. pretending to be politicians, and like and you've gone like boys in texas which like mm-hmm. i don't want to make generalizations but i feel like maybe you know girls in massachusetts would be a very different <laughs> vibe of of um you know documentary oh for sure um yeah but i found that it wasn't it, it kind of brought hope to the current political moment mm-hmm. and like a, a little bit of levity but also i think had an interesting commentary on it too i would like i think it's fantastic and like great and if you can kind of suffer through um like 300 adolescent men telling you that women don't have the right to choose um a lot um that it's entertaining um in some weird way yeah i saw that bit in the trailer and i was like oh this is beyond frustrating because like number one you're a boy but also like you're a minor like you're the person who's least involved in this situation probably out of everyone it's really interesting and you get to see kind of the microcosm of what it means to like have views just because you're part of a party um yeah yeah i like that um it great like i not that i've seen many 2020 movies but definitely one of the best ones um so yeah what have you been watching i also watched something that is definitely not gentle at all um and actually also a, a very wild ride and again something i promised i would speak about <laughs> on this podcast for the longest time um finally here it is my little chat on i may destroy you i want to begin this with an apology because i feel like this is not going to be the discussion that the show deserves number one because i literally just finished watching it a couple hours before we started recording today (laughs) um the finale just aired in the u.s last night the night before and has like literally just been placed on hbo online so i can just watch it um and i'm still picking my jaw up off the ground after that finale and unscrambling my thoughts but also because the show is just so immense there is so much to unpack it could probably be its own episode and we may in fact do something um that incorporates i may destroy you into the pop culture segment very soon but uh essentially it is a british show um by um a woman named michaela cole who um wrote stars in it i believe like directs and produces um or at least co-directs and produces it and it follows um a black london author called um arabella s you do and she has written a book kind of based on her Twitter feed. She was very funny online and was was given a book deal after that and is now trying to write her second book. And 
goes on a night out to um, kind of take the pressure off and, you know, just let some steam off and is sexually assaulted on the night out. So the show on all 12 episodes of it are a really deep analysis and really nuanced discussion of the intersection of sexual assault and consent and grief so it's obviously not for everyone and mm-hmm. if that is triggering I, I do not recommend um but if it is something that you can handle right now i i really do recommend it because it is such an interesting and thought-provoking discussion of those topics it discussion discusses um sexual assault in so many different forms um you know that you're giving consent to a particular type of sex or the difference between a woman reporting sexual assault versus a man reporting sexual assault by another man and also if that occurred because it was a dating app hookup so it's incredibly nuanced there and it also covers a lot of other different topics in a really complex and unique and never seen before way so it examines what it's like to be a woman in a patriarchal society and what it's like to be um gay or what it's like to be black and it's just fascinating to see all those different threads pulled in ways that you know have never been seen before i mean there's scenes there that i i've never seen something like that on television before it can be quite graphic at times um And I also think that it's just incredibly well made and it does things well that are historically very hard to do well. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's episodes where the whole episode is a flashback or the whole episode is set in Italy when the rest of the show is set in London. And normally those episodes suck, you know, when you're really looking forward (laughs) to a series like I think the infamous like Stranger Things episode where we just watch Elle go do something else for an episode Mm -hmm. and you're like, oh this is not I didn't wait a week to get this this does it so 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 well um and it's just shot beautifully it's acted perfectly the last episode in particular is just as I said my jaw was literally on like I mean not literally on the floor but like pretty close (laughs) I have never been that just awestruck in, in a very long time. It's, it's been a long, long time before something has just left me absolutely amazed like that. So uh, we'll link some articles. There's been some really great profiles of the creator, Michaela Cole. Um, there's been some really great analysis of the episodes. And they all do a far better job than this gushy, rambly discussion that I have done. But I just want to let you guys know that it is freaking fantastic in, in so, so many different ways. So... 100% recommend I May Destroy You. Um, Micah, in terms of recommendations, listening, can you recommend a listening a listening mm-hmm. thing, something you've listened to this month and think we all should? Um, so I want to recommend a podcast. Um, it's called Nice White Parents, and it's um, produced by the Serial Productions, which is like This American's Life um, like the people who made cereal, it's their like separate production company okay. and, um, the New York times. Um, and it, um, is a podcast about the New York school system. Um, and basically the thesis of the podcast is that the single most powerful group in, um, the school system are white parents. 
Um, and so what it does is it like try it argues this in this in really interesting way of looking at one specific public school in Brooklyn where white parents have had um, the ability to change the direction of the school for decades. Um, and almost all of this change has happened at the detriment of kids of color. Um, and so part of this is inspired by this 2017 study that came out that showed that um, New York City is actually the most segregated school system in the U.S. Um, here we are like decades and decades after Brown v. Board of Education. We mm -hmm. still have this incredibly segregated school system. Interesting. And so this I remember yeah. we like learned a lot about it in Boston, like the busing situation yes. that was going on there. So um, that'd be really interesting mm -hmm. to see how another city that kind of holds itself up as progressive. Yeah. Um, it's also incredibly segregated. Mm -hmm. So... I, I've been really, really liking these kind of shorter podcast series that have this very clear take or argument about their topic. So in some ways, this really reminded me of the 1619 Project, of that it took this yeah. thing that we know about. Yeah, like this thing that you know about really well and offered this new, um, refreshing, like, argument about why it is the way it is. Um, and that, like, it can just be something that's, you know six or ten episodes and and that's it like this it's just that story um i think a friend a while ago put me on to one called hunting warhead about um investigators who were tracking down like online pedophiles mm -hmm. and yeah it was like six or so episodes you can listen to it all in a day if you want but it's, mm -hmm. it's very satisfying i think oh yeah um this is one of those podcasts where like i listened to it and then went and talked to everyone i knew i was like i learned this thing today and this thing blew my mind um and it, it really like gets into the kind of not what i loved about it the most was it not only said this is the problem because the reporter is a nice white parent who lives in Brooklyn and wants to send her kids to school. Um, it doesn't just identify the problem. It says, okay, so we're the problem. How do we fix this problem that the people have been trying to fix for forever? Yeah. And tries to come to some sort of conclusion about that. And I don't know um, how she, I don't know like how satisfying the conclusion is, but I think it was really, important that she did that as, as a white parent to be like, I have identified myself as the problem and I need to do something about it. Mm -hmm. um, because unfortunately I have the power to, mm -hmm. and it needs to change. But also then what happens when white parents decide that they need to be the change? Cause it turns out often it works horribly. Fascinating podcast. Well, and it got me super interested. Yeah. So definitely would recommend all the episodes are out now. I had to listen to it like as they came out, but you can definitely listen to it like in a couple days. Um, like so interesting. I will definitely do that. I've been getting more into listening to podcasts while I work from home. So I'm going to add that to my list. Um, what I have been listening to, not going to recommend podcasts uh, mm -hmm. this, this month. I think I did a lot of that last month and there's not really new ones that I've added lately. I am going to, come back at you with my outdated indie rock recommendation <laughs> and uh both the killers and bright eyes have new mm -hmm. albums out they are called imploding the mirage and down in the weeds where the world once was respectively which i realize are the most quintessentially mm -hmm. killers and bright eyes names ever and i think the songs very much reflect that if you listen to both of their most recent albums before this one and like them you will like this these ones mm -hmm. too you know it it's 
it's very similar. You're you're a killer spam, Micah. Did you? Yeah. In have you listened to Employed in the Mirage? Do you I've like listened it? to it twice, mm-hmm. and I've liked it so far. I really like the yeah. the opening track. Um, yes. Uh, I think Caution's great. I like. Yes. I mean, that one was already. Um, released before but mm-hmm. they they yeah. are really good at choosing their singles unlike some people yeah some people i.e taylor swift uh, <laughs> yeah no they're they're good single choosers i think they mm-hmm. usually do their their lead single is almost always their their strongest one that yeah, they, like they the play. man from the last album oh. so good i mean that's that's my dad's favorite killer song of all time really that's you know not their best album by any stretch or their I, most I, iconic if, album. Is your is your favorite killer song from Hot Fuzz? Uh no, mine is from Sam's Town and it is mm. Sam's Town. Mm. Yeah. I mean Hot Fuzz, I don't know how you would pick a single off that. That's I, true. I'm impressed they picked one because or they picked three because they're all perfect and every yes. every song on that is a single. But uh this one probably not so much <laughs> but you know it's it's still fun it's what you expect from the killers in the past you know since Battleborn, yeah. really um and that's good i like that and i think they're gonna be there's a lot of songs especially on that album i mean hesitant to say bright eyes albums will be bright eyes songs will be fun live they're <laughs> obviously gonna be interesting live uh but yes a lot of ones on the the killers album like oh this will be fun live it might not be my favorite song ever but it'll be really fun as part of a really fun live set because that's what they always do so that seems to be their thing now is to write albums to tour which i don't have a problem with i mean i think get different things from different artists if you want something i mean i i for me like the the strokes are the opposite of that right Mm -hmm. that they'll do these i mean they have a lot of songs actually on their most recent album that came out in april that i think will be really fun live but i'm not sure if they they gear their they gear their stuff as much towards live performance and mm-hmm. thus i can probably more rely on them to produce like a a more like consistent album i usually like their albums better but a killer's mm-hmm. live show is where it's at that's oh yeah that's I, i'm so fun. desperate to go to one one day. One day. One day. One day we will be reunited and there will be no pandemic. So we can go dance to Mr. Brightside. Time for the politics section of the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. This, or so in past episodes, I've really enjoyed when we kind of do a deep dive into um, political figures. So we did an episode on Wangari Matai, and then we did an episode on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, so I thought we would do the same thing and talk about um, an important woman in politics who is relevant to the news right now. So unless you have been living under a rock, um, you may have noticed that Kamala Harris is running to be vice president with Joe Biden. Um, and she is not the first woman of color to run for president. Um, and in fact, she recognizes this a lot, and she um, of- often says that she stands on the shoulders of Shirley Chisholm. So today, I thought we would talk about Shirley Chisholm and why she's this important figure in American politics, and why Kamala Harris vocally says she owes a debt to her politically. Hmm. So Very timely, Mike. Yeah. Um, I had such fun prepping this podcast. So oh, I hope good. It'll be a. Uh, an interesting take and 
story. So who is Shirley Chisholm? She um, is both the first woman, but also the first African-American um, from a major party to run for president. And she did this so back- vice president, but like president. straight up president. Yeah. Well, Kamala like ran for president too. She yes. just- Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't succeed. Um, so she, Shirley Chisholm ran in 1972, um, which was obviously quite a while from now. And we've seen yes. other women of color after her. And obviously like- not only did she pave the way for Kamala Harris, but she paved the way for Barack Obama, who mm-hmm. um, was like, successful. Was successful. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so Shirley Chisholm um, is the child of um, Caribbean immigrants, and she was born in 1924 in Crown Heights. Um, she spent. Sorry, I was trying to yes. do some mental maths of how old she would have been when she was um, running for president. I did it wrong. I thought she was going to be in her 30s, but no, we're we're thinking like like. 50-ish? Yeah. 40? Oh, that's pretty, pretty young. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, that's like, is that 48? Did I do that right? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I can't do you mental might... math like that. Ah, ah, guys, we're under ah. pressure. 1972. There's people listening to this right now. They're like, <laughs> we're like, idiots. <laughs> like, why am I listening to idiots? 48. That actually yeah, is yeah. really young for a yeah, president. For politics, right? I mean, yeah. Especially right now when they're like <clears throat> 70. Ancient. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, she was born in 1924, um, and she she spent her childhood both in Brooklyn, but also with her grandmother in Barbados, um, as her parents were um, attempting to, like, set up their life in Brooklyn. Um, She went to a British school in Barbados, um, which gave her a slight English accent. Um, so she had, like, a kind of American English melded accent for her whole life. Um, so in, like, all of her speeches, which made her kind of stand out. Um, so in um, 1946, she graduated from Brooklyn College, having done very well, participated in the debate club. Um, and her professor told her that she should enter politics. Um, but she said, I can't do that because I have a double handicap of being both a woman and black. Um, so she kind of set politics aside at that time. Um, she worked, she got married, um, and then she decided to earn her master's degree, um, in teaching at Columbia in 1951, and that was in, um, early childhood education. So she became, um, really involved in, like, daycare and childhood education, um, in New York and became the consultant for the New York City Division of Daycare, um, and that's kind of how she, that was the beginning of her professional career. And then as she was doing this, she was also getting involved in all of these different political um, things as well. So she joined the League of Women Voters. Um, she joined the NAACP and she joined the Democratic Party in Brooklyn. So she was getting quite involved. Um mm-hmm. So she started her political career in the New York State Legislature in 1964, where she ran and won, um, but then didn't enter um, uh, national politics until 68. Um, And when she did win, um, she became the first African-American woman in Congress, um, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, her, yeah, so her election was really interesting. Um, tell me about it. Yeah. I um, literally tell me about it. I'm like, tell me about it, but please 
inform me of it. I, I will. Um, so the district that she'd been living in had been dominantly Republican because of how it been had been the lines had been drawn, and then the Supreme the courts I can't remember the Supreme Court, but the courts said that it had to be redistricted, and Ooh. when it was redistricted, it became one of these um, districts that was going to be Democrat. Like there were so right. many Democrats. Um, that like there was no way it was going to flip. And so the Democratic Party decided that this was a great opportunity to get more African Americans into Congress. Um, and so Chisholm um, was part of a primary with two other prominent African American um, community members from the district. Um, and she won her primary um, de- with like a decent majority. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, she ran against a Republican. Um, a, I, in my notes, wrote astonishingly progressive Republican named James Farmer, who was actually a black civil rights activist. Um, Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. His whole thing was that the Democratic Party just assumes that because they're the party of like Kennedy and Johnson, that um, black people will vote for them and that they shouldn't just assume that they get these votes, they should actually earn them. And he was obviously like more fiscally conservative than Chisholm was. Um, and so you kind of had these very mostly like-minded people um, and had and had to differentiate themselves. And obviously the biggest differentiation between the two was gender. And mm. Farmer really took this and said, well, actually, you know what? Brooklyn doesn't need or want a woman to represent them. Um, it has too many it's black so women. progressive mm-hmm. anymore, farmer. His, his argument was Brook, um, Brooklyn has been dominated by black women for too long. We should have a black man representing us. Um, and mm. yeah, um, so Chisholm would said, well, this is quite sexist and it's also a representation of the discrimination that women face all the time and is persistent and is one of the things that's holding women back. Um, And because I know this and clearly Farmer doesn't, I'm the best person for the job. And so her slogan was unbought and unbossed. So she wasn't, no one was telling her what to do and she wasn't being lobbied by anyone. She was her own person fighting for the rights and the needs of the people in her community. And that worked really well because she won by 67% of the vote. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then she was off to Congress. And while she was there, um, being the first African-American woman in Congress, she not only helped start the Congressional Black Caucus, which is now and has been since then a very important caucus in Congress, but also the National Women's Political Caucus, both two very important caucuses um, that we wouldn't, wouldn't understand. Kai? Kai? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, so when she got to Congress, um, she was known as Fighting Shirley. Um, so she entered Congress and she said, um, I have no intention of just sitting quietly and observing. I wanted to focus attention on the nation's problems. Um, and she did that. Um, she introduced over 50 pieces of legislation. She was very vehemently against the Vietnam War, which is an incredibly unpopular take at the time. Mm. Um, she focused a lot of her legislation on racial justice and gender justice and help for the poor. Um, and another quote that she said, which I think really amplifies what she did, 
um, and exemplifies it is if they don't give you a seat at the table, you bring your own folding chair. I love that. So, yeah, I know. Um, so as I was kind of reading about this first election that she had and thinking about like her in Congress, I could not help but think about AOC and her politics. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of uh, like tenacity and coming at it from the same sort of angle, right? Yeah. Because you see AOC do the same thing of coming into Congress and really um, not wanting to be what we would call in Canadian politics a backbencher, but someone like in the back of the party who doesn't have a lot of voice. Um, yeah, she's not phoning it in and she's not doing it from a career politician or ambition mm-hmm. pers- like perspective. Yeah. Or just really like the being... Idea that- she wants to make change. Oh, yeah. Or, like, her just being, like, well, I'm a junior, so I'm not gonna, mm. like, step on any toes. Yeah. No, she, um, yeah, she's very open about she's that. Not she's not doing that. absolutely wants yeah. to, to rattle things. Yes. So, I, I looked it up, and they're not from the same congressional district, but the ones, like, right beside each other, which oh, I think is cool. cool. Yeah. Um, so, Shirley Chisholm has been in... Um, Congress at this point for um, about a decade when she decides that she wants to run um, for president. Um, and she kind of, many people say that when she went into that, she knew she wasn't going to win. Um, mm-hmm. But she said that she felt like she had to seek the nomination because none of the other candidates represented their interests of blacks or the inner city poor. Um, so was this seen as a way to push the other candidates yeah. to do that? Okay. I think part of her goals as a politician was to get recognition that there were other Americans than just those that were being represented in Congress um, and to just have a platform to say those things. Um, and so when she talks about how there people, other nominees for the Democratic Party um, or potential nominees um, didn't represent black people and the poor she really meant it in that george wallace was one of the candidates and he openly advocated for segregation um and was by all accounts incredibly racist um most people know george wallace because he was shot during um the campaign um and lost and at the end of it lost um the ability to use his legs um and you'd think the last person to go and see him in the hospital would be a black woman, but no, Shirley Chisholm went to go visit him um, in the hospital to see how he was. Amazing. Um, And I was reading an interview with one of her campaign staffers, which I'll link in the description because I think it's wonderful. And she was saying how at the end of the day, George Wallace was just a human to Chisholm and that she didn't that his politics didn't matter because he had been shot and like was injured and it was important to just see him as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, George Wallace obviously dropped out of the race because he was injured and couldn't run anymore. So well. Yeah. Um, and then he, Chisholm thought she could win Florida. She thought it was a quite um, a good possibility, but then George Wallace really liked Chisholm despite her being a black woman and um, actually went and put his support behind her. And then all of these people thought, well, if he's supporting her, does she hold his values? And they didn't vote for her. Oh, no. Oh, so she lost, like, her almost guaranteed people in an attempt to get his ones. Yes. Oh, no. Um, 
And it was, and apparently, it's unclear whether she asked him to support her or not, because it seems like a horrible decision. Um, though, like currently, right? Is this it's kind like when of Lena Dunham said that she didn't come out in support of Hillary because everyone hated her so much that they wouldn't have voted for Hillary. <laughs> I guess it seems a little like that. Poor Lena. My my example was going to be like John Kasich at the DNC, but that's a good example too. <laughs> we'll Politics to and pop that. culture. Yeah, mm, that was a. I think it was her. Yeah, she was like criticized for not doing more in 2016. She was like, "Everyone hates me. If I did it, you definitely wouldn't have voted for her." And I'm like, "Ooh, uh, it's true. <laughs> that's funny." Um. Yeah, so uh, she loses, doesn't get as many um, seats in Florida or delegates in Florida as she wanted. But when she she makes it to the DNC, like she doesn't drop out before the convention, and um, she wins 152 delegates, which is 10 percent wow. of the delegates, which is quite impressive, um, considering she was kind of not supported by a lot of people. Um, and she made it into 12 primaries. So 152 delegates from 12 primaries, pretty great. Um, and despite like how impressive that final result is, she didn't have a lot of peace support. So Gloria Steinem, who at the time was the most famous feminist there was, mm. um, decided to endorse one of the men who was running. Um, who was that? I think it was... Hmm, I think it was the person... Who won in the end but it was they didn't win the election so oh okay yeah right yeah 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 um he's it's very upsetting that the person who like is in that election unless you're like deeply into american politics no one remembers the name yeah 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 they get romneyed yeah um so Gloria Steinem didn't support her. And then the other group that didn't support her was the Congressional Black Caucus that she helped to found. Um, found. And, um, and, and then also in general, the black vote was incredibly split and wasn't organized at all to support her. Um, and in retrospect, when talking about it, she notes that her biggest obstacle to winning was being a woman, not being black. Um, so why was the black vote split? Because she was a woman. Well, I think the black vote, um, remember this is like pretty like soon after in the like grand theme of politics after um, the Civil Rights Act and like yeah, black oh, people yeah, have to get the right to vote in a, a real way. Um, and I don't think they had, they weren't as politically organized um, as right. expected. So in, um, she actually like took us or decided to run in a meeting of like the black caucus um where they were fighting over who should run and if anyone should run at all or whether they should support a white man and she was like you know what i'm done with this i'm going to run because you guys can't make a decision um and so that meant that there was a big divide about like what was the most politically effective way to vote um and so and i think this was very reminiscent of like the current nomination period that we just had um people around the country um were kind of hesitant to vote for her so one woman was quoted in a newspaper saying um i would like to be able to afford to vote for shirley chisholm but i can't i want someone who will beat nixon oh um, okay yeah we've we've been there very recently yeah. so um this was 
there was like an anecdote in one of the articles I read about how this woman who was wearing a vote for Chisholm button said she was undecided. (laughs) Where'd you get the button from, girlfriend? Like, come on. Come on. Does Um, the button mean anything to you? Yeah. So, obviously, she didn't win the nomination, and uh, Nixon won another term. Um, So, after um, her presidential race... Um, she continued to be in Congress for quite a while. Um, in a 1974 poll of Americans, um, when asked who which woman they admired most, she was the sixth most admired woman in the world, and she beat Jackie Kennedy and Coretta Scott King, um, Martin Luther King's wife. Yeah. So wait. So who was the most admired woman? I, the article I read didn't say, but I will find out because I'm interested. That's yeah. In that, seventy four. Who was the most admired woman? Hmm. Billie Jean King. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, know. that's. Well, we will yeah. find this out. We'll, why don't we? Everyone play a guessing game, and then we'll announce it on social media. You can bring a fun <laughs> yes. to your dinner party of who was the most admired woman in America in nineteen seventy four. Yes, we'll pop that on. Well, I bet it was somebody who would like died. Could you vote for like? Yeah, I dead people. So. I feel there's some like reverence to to that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like I feel um, all these people would probably still rank quite highly now due to a lot of the time not being alive. Yeah. as well as well as their fantastic work. But it's true. Mm. Yeah. So now nah, probably she, Oprah would win now. Maybe Oprah feels like she would have won like five years ago. Maybe. Um, Malala, Beyonce, yeah. Michelle Obama. I assume Reese Michelle Witherspoon. Obama's there, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Myself, just a little humble. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> for themselves. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, just a so, little write in, like, vote. Um, <laughs> like, back when everyone was putting, like, Harambe on the election, like, when they give out this poll, you have the option to write in yourself. Mm hmm. Perfect. And if you've got a really common name, then you win. Mm-hmm. You have to organize. You have to organize all the other like Ann Smiths to to vote for yourselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, so sorry. Get us back to um, Charlie Chisholm is admired, and it's 1974. Yes. So she's admired by the public quite a bit, but her presidential run kind of ruined the political um will she had in congress um and, yeah i know so she she kind of divided the two caucuses that she had founded um, oh no i know um and at the time i think actually in reflection about like her kind of last years in congress she said um black male politicians are no different from white male politicians this woman thing is so deep i found it out in this campaign if I never knew it before. So this is kind of her reflecting on her presidential campaign and kind Uh of uh the place that it left her. So she, um, not only were they kind of, they abandoned her during her presidential nomination, but um, campaign, but then she also um, kind of, as we saw, like her going to George Wallace's hospital, she had this kind of conciliatory kind of politics and her idea was if we want to make change in this country we need everyone to be a part of that change um and so she like was friends with the white people in congress um Mm -hmm. and a lot of the black caucus didn't appreciate that and didn't think it was the right kind of politics right Um, okay yeah gosh that's such a hard 
line, isn't it, that we even see today of mm-hmm. of how friendly you should be across aisles. Mm-hmm. And this was mm-hmm. a time when we saw, like, the Republican who ran against her was a civil rights leader. So clearly it wasn't, like, the divided in the same way that we have today. No, but there's still. other divides in question. Yeah. yeah. Um, so she stayed in Congress until 1983 um, and left after having served seven terms. Um, she was there for quite a while. Um, mm. After she left Congress, she went back to teaching. She went to Mount Hollycock College. Um, and also. I think it's in New York. That would make um, sense. Yeah. Because um, she she remarried when she was in Congress and her husband was a New York State dele- uh, representative. Cool. Um, yeah. So, and also in leaving, she um, helped to find, a f- found? She helped to create um, the National Congress of Black Women. Um which is really interesting. Um, and I think to finish Shirley mm-hmm. Chisholm's uh, biography that we hear, I'll read one last Chisholm quote because clearly she's Please a do. very eloquent speaker. Um, yes, she has some nice quotes. Maybe maybe yeah. we're an ex-tattoo. <laughs> maybe. Right, we, we, might, we, we maybe don't need to do that. I'm not really into quote tattoos. But but definitely, definitely a poster. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, she said, I want history to remember me, not as the first black woman to have made a bid for the presidency of the United States, but as a black woman who lived in the 20th century and to dare and who dared to be herself. I want to be remembered as a catalyst for change in America. And I think I love that. I think that That's is how so she's perfect, remembered. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, would, I, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. I, I, I totally think that the, the one achievement of being the first black woman to run for president doesn't overshadow the rest of her work i mm-hmm. think it all kind of i mean i mean as someone who doesn't or didn't know as much about her as as others before yeah to me it was more the whole portfolio of of change making mm-hmm. yeah and i think one article i read about her was really interesting because it was um, written in 2016, I think before Trump started to get more popular, Clinton was the nominee and yeah. it didn't look like she was going to lose. Um, and this article really painted her in this wonderful positive light of like, here she is leading the way for like these Democratic presidents that we are so proud of. Um, and now this reevaluation four years later, we see mm-hmm. maybe an even more powerful like reminder of how important she is. I think with that like understanding of how similar she is to AOC um, yeah. and Kamala constantly mentioning her and saying mm-hmm. how important she is to where she is today. Um, so I think definitely she's been remembered. Um, I love that line of um, a black woman who lived in the 20th century and dared yeah. to be herself. That like just the power and the politics of existing and of boldly saying that you are who you are and you're going to stand for that, I think is wonderful and a great sentiment. So yeah, that is Shirley Chisholm. I hope I hope everyone learned something today. Oh, I definitely did, my God. I'm sure everyone else did too. Moving on to the pop culture section of the show. And we actually had a pretty big month in august i actually had i mean comparatively like to the rest of to the rest of the year like not to other years but you know we were really scrounging for material earlier this year and i actually had some things to choose from 
But um, with all the material available, I have decided to go into a deep dive of the viral sensation that is the strawberry dress. Hmm. First of all, the big question, Micah, have you seen the strawberry dress? Um, I have, but I think we'll get into this later, but I've only ever seen the original wearer of it. I've never Uh actually seen it on TikTok. Good, 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 good. Um, So I will post a picture of it to our Instagram at DTCBS podcast um, because, you know, it's, it's always good to have an actual visual rather than me just describe visual things. <laughs> um, but it is an almost full length pastel pink tool dress with these puffy sleeves and a, a beautiful um, hem and it has strawberries printed all over it. It is it's stunning. It's a very um, Disney princess crossed with Marie Antoinette dress and i hope when you check out the instagram once again at dtcbs podcast that you will also agree it was made by the designer larika matoshi i hope i am pronouncing that correctly and she is a kosovo born new york city based designer she's like super young i think she's like 24 so um yeah we're definitely officially yeah 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 we're definitely reaching the age where um everyone is successful and they're our age and that's upsetting and scary uh but yes very very successful young woman and she designed this dress and it retails for 490 dollars which mm. us which we will get into again uh soon but yeah the dress went viral this year uh, especially this summer and that's not an uncommon thing like it's 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 not new to have a viral clothing item of the season. Um, if you cast your mind back to winter 2019, so I, I think it was probably like 2018, 2019 winter, there was the um, RLA Amazon coat, um, which I actually own. I did get it in a thrift store though. And that was this sort of like khaki green, big puffy winter coat that had a ton of zips on it. Maybe you mm-hmm. saw me wearing it at some point, yes. Micah, but very handy zips on that. And that was the item that everybody had that winter. And then last summer, there was the Zara spotty dress. Mm-hmm. I was in Ireland at the time and saw everyone wearing this. It was, again, a very long dress, uh, kind of shapeless. So it was, it was sort of like it wasn't maybe the most flattering item of clothing, but a white long dress with long sleeves and black spots on it mm-hmm. um did you own either of these or was there any other viral pieces anything else that any you've viral pieces that i've owned there was mm. the leopard uh midi skirt that everyone had for a while as well no, not a leopard trend. i think the only trend i've hopped on recently is bike shorts but because i want to be comfy yeah and i feel like that's a like a, a category of of item right like that's mm-hmm. like saying not like Jeans. one specific yes. thing. Yes. Yeah, and especially like a specific brand, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but this dress is huge this year. So the hashtag strawberry dress has almost 6 million views on TikTok at time of recording. And this is from people doing things like unboxings, of them drawing the dress, of them photoshopping people like Harry Styles into the dress. According to global fashion platform list, searches for the strawberry dress spiked by 103% since the beginning of August, and sales have increased more than 1,000% since it was launched in January. So, incredibly viral item. I think what's unusual, though, about it being viral right now is um, 
you know, we are in a pandemic and it's kind of weird that this, mm-hmm. this dress is so popular. So um, there's an article by in Vogue by a journalist called Sarah Spellings, and she has some ideas about uh, the aesthetic of it. So number one, that it fits into this cottage core aesthetic mm-hmm. that is quite popular around now. Uh, that's all about this sort of English countryside bliss. You know, you'd be hanging with the sheep and eating jam on scones and reading pride and prejudice and this is the the perfect dress to to do this in you know if if that's the the trend of 2020 like i think e-boy or e-girl was before you know mm-hmm. it, it it's a thing the young people are doing um it makes sense that you know this item fits into that category um also with the rise of tiktok so we've talked in previous episodes how this app catapulted old town road to fame um there are a lot of like song trends on tiktok where a specific song becomes associated with a specific type of video so for example there's like dances to uh savage by megan the stallion or blinding lights by the weekend and there's a mitski song called strawberry blonde that people have been using a lot to Mm. um, make their strawberry dress videos with so that kind of helps it go viral Mm -hmm. on that app um, but yeah, again, it's still weird that it's popular during this time because it is an expensive dress and no one has anywhere to wear it because it's not an everyday item. This is like a fancy mm-hmm. dress. Um, but again, um, Sarah Spelling said, it's over the top and fanciful. It speaks to the glamour of black tie events, the Oscars, the Met Gala, special occasions that appear like a distant memory. But more than that, the sweet strawberry print is deeply nostalgic hearkening back to a time long before COVID-19, to a childhood innocence that feels especially soothing right now. Um, Isabel Sloan also said in the New York Times, the sheer horror of 2020 demands an incredulous level of mythical escapism. Mm. So yeah, it has that kind of escapist quality and that nostalgia quality to it as well. Um, So that sort of explains what the dress is and why it's so big right now. But you know what? The thing I love about fashion is that it's not just it's not just about pieces of fabric on someone's body. It ties into a, a lot of of wider and um, you know deep rooted topics in our culture, our popular mm-hmm. culture. So the first one that this dress relates to, and that I like to unpack, is uh, sizeism. So there are a lot of different statistics that I've come across about what the what size the average American woman is, but um, it's estimated that it's about a size 14. So um, if you are in other countries, that might be a little bit different, obviously because of the size mm-hmm. of your population, but also the dress sizes are different. But yes, in the US, we're estimating around a size 14. And so this dress goes up to a size 16, which means that it's not the most inclusive but that is pretty good for a small independent um, brand. But yeah, there's going to be a, a large number of the population mm-hmm. who do not fit in, who cannot fit into this dress. And that's definitely something that we need to think about in fashion or designers they need to think about is how to make clothes for everyone. Um, so the Curvy Fashionista website um, made some concrete points about how people can do that so most involved designers actually making plus size clothing so Mm -hmm. plus size shoppers 
when you say inclusive, they expect at least a U.S. size 20. So, you know, not like a 14 or a 16. Mm-hmm. And that this will apply to all items in a collection. So if that's not the case, that should be made clearly rather than just using inclusivity as a bandwagon jumping uh, item. And there's also an issue um, that sort of comes up that's a little related, which is the clothing when it is made inclusive um, to larger sizes, it's often more expensive. And this has been dubbed the fat tax. And the designer of the strawberry dress has actually faced some pushback on this topic before um, when the extended sizes of a previous item were found to be nearly $100 more expensive than the smaller items. And, you know, you could say that this is about the extra fabric, but it's not. Um, There's a great Glamour article by Janelle Okuda that I will link to, and it explains it really well. It says, the added cost isn't so much in the product itself, so you know the fabric, but rather Mm -hmm. the steps needed to create it. Designers pay for textiles, patterns, and sewing, all of which can differ from garment to garment, and the price for the final product is based on a sample. To extend its sizes, they have to cut new patterns, conduct fittings with a range of models, and hold focus groups, all of which require more money. So, I mean, I think for me, the obvious solution there is to be inclusive from the beginning. Like, it's weird to me that designers would immediately think of a much less common body type, like a US size 6, for example, and not consider the most common body type in in the country mm-hmm. because i mean that just makes financial sense right like that's yeah, yeah. um but yeah I w- there is there is a related topic to this which i will get into in just a moment but designers also yeah the, if there is this issue of having to you know recut the the fa- the um, the patterns and conduct the fittings, etc. Later on, um, designers can also make adjustments to the wholesale margins based on the largest size they sell rather than the smallest to offset mm-hmm. expenses while keeping the price consistent across the board. So, yeah, if you find at the end of the day that it is more expensive because you've made a size 21, well, that needs to be spread across all the sizes um, because it is just offensive to make people of one size pay more than mm-hmm. another when it's your fault that you've excluded them right and i think this really closely relates to fat phobia which is very prevalent in our society um and has a few different threads relating to this dress so number one and this is what you were kind of alluding to before mm-hmm. i believe micah uh, plus size model tess holiday actually wore this dress on the red carpet back in january and it didn't get a huge positive reaction you know the, the one that it has now and she kind of has an idea why she said I like how this dress had me on the worst dress list when I wore it in January to the Grammys, but now because a bunch of skinny people wore it on TikTok, everyone cares. To sum it up, our society hates fat people, especially when we are winning. And there's been some suggestions that she was on the worst dress list, not because the dress was bad, because obviously it isn't, because obviously mm-hmm. everyone's very into it now, but because it's not how she as a fat woman was supposed to dress everyone thinks or not everyone but there is this prevailing idea that um large women should try and look smaller and not draw attention to themselves and this dress is the opposite of that Mm -hmm. um and 
I, I think that's a pretty fair comment that she's made because other plus size models like Brie Kish and Danny Souter were also wearing it months ago. So it's it's not just a, a her thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also, yeah, I think it is pretty fair that society approves things when it's on the acceptable type of person, which in this case is a thin white woman. And that's probably why designers think of in an atypical body type first when Mm -hmm. they're designing clothing you know as i said a u.s size six isn't the most common body type in the country but that's the most coveted one let's say and that's what they'll design to there's actually a viral twitter post that pointed out the double standards of users um mocking to large older women for wearing walmart fashion so they were wearing like graphic tees and jeans shorts when it's guaranteed that everyone would be all over those items mm-hmm. if someone like Kendall Jenner was wearing it, right? Like, yeah, it's also like essentially like Visco Girl style, right? Yeah, there's like so many posts where everyone is like, "Wow, Kendall's outfits! Like, they're just so amazing. I want her style." And all she's wearing is a pair of like black shorts and like a white tank top, like. Mm-hmm. But they like it because it's on her body, which has been deemed this acceptable one and the one that everyone should be striving for. So um, that really does play into fashion and play into viral trends. And they are all related there. I think it's so interesting that like these plus size models who are wearing this dress before are actually probably the size of the average woman. If it's 14. Like, they're not like, like I. That was always. I don't know if you ever watched America's Next Top Model, but like mm-hmm. they had a season where they brought on plus size girls. Yes, and they were like normal, healthy looking people, unlike everyone who has ever competed on that show before. Yes, yeah. Like they had like bodies that like you'd actually see on the street. That's um, the thing. It's just bizarre to me how we've when. You know, it's like that thing where you close your eyes and like, okay, picture a woman and everyone's going to think of like a size six white woman. And that mm-hmm. is just not the most typical type of woman. It's it's who we see on TV and it's who we see on um, the runways and in the magazines. But like if you think of your friends and your family, the people you see on the street, how many of them actually fit into that? Like, I've been thinking about this a lot. I was like, I don't know anyone who actually fits in those like the size, yeah. like those sizes at all. No, no, like it's yeah. I, I don't. There's not a lot of people in my life who I'm like, oh yes, Kendall Jenner. Like you look mm-hmm. exactly, or you know, they, they they have a Kendall Jenner vibe, or they look like someone on, um, yeah, TV or a magazine. So it it is bizarre that we've come up with these ideas of what we think a normal person looks like, and that's mm-hmm. the the outlier in in your friendship group, maybe. So. Very, very strange. Very strange what we've done there. I think there's a lot to unpack there. And obviously, I mean, in my opinion, that's like by design, right? That Mm -hmm. it benefits a lot of industries to keep that as um, a a certain model of of what we should strive to. Um, But this dress does have other other threads. I (laughs) I like using the word threads with the dress because, like, you know, it has Mm -hmm. threads because it's fabric. Mm -hmm. Something really smart there. Um, But I think it also highlights the friction between sustainability and price inclusivity as well. Yeah. So this is obviously a pretty expensive dress. It's 490 US dollars. You know, if you were getting it somewhere else, you'd have, like, shipping costs included as well. Um, And, you know, on the one hand, 
in regards to sustainability, this is a good thing because if something is pricier, it usually means the materials are ethically sourced and the people making it are being fairly paid. And, you know, this hasn't been the case with previous viral items. You know, the Mm -hmm. Zara dress, for example, Um, Zara has a not good enough rating for the categories like environmental impact and labor conditions from ethical index, good on you. And when something's going viral, you're generating more sales for an item Mm -hmm. that is not a not an you know an ethical choice um so you know in in a sense this is addressed by an independent designer um the cost almost certainly means that it's a more sustainable um and more you know ethical in terms of labor conditions choice but there is, you know, a, a downside to that. When something is so cheap, it or sorry, so expensive, it opens the door for dupes that are not going to be as sustainable. Um, so Amazon has like versions of the dress that are like thirty dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, AliExpress has ones that are even cheaper, and you know, you can guarantee they're they're not going to be um, as ethical a choice. And I mean, this is a bit of a side note on this, but when there are dupes, that's like bad for designers and creatives you know when something's being ripped off like that uh kim kardashian actually highlighted this last year when a dress that she wore like a one-off dress um appeared almost instantly on fashion nova which is a website that bills itself as ultra fast fashion she said that it's devastating to see these fashion companies rip off designs that have taken the blood sweat and tears of true designers who have put their all into their own original ideas so that was a little a little caveat there but back to the original idea. Um, so, you know, we could say that maybe that this dress in its original sense, not its duped sense, um, by the designer is a sustainability win. But on the other side of the scales, it means that that's not affordable for everyone, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's a crappy feeling not being able to afford something. And, you know, what? as I think this is illustrated, nothing – in our world exists in a vacuum and there are many factors that go into a person's financial situation so if we think about who in our society has the least historical and current day impediments to wealth a lot of the time they're going to be the same ones applauded on tiktok for wearing the dress right Mm -hmm. so it really goes in this kind of vicious circle of certain people being included in fashion and other ones not so mm-hmm. it's um a very strange cycle and one that you probably wouldn't uh, immediately think of but um one that is definitely being perpetuated so in conclusion i really love this dress i do i do i think it's pretty and it's flattering and i like the idea of supporting small designers. I'm not going to buy it or anything because like <laughs> for me, $490 is reserved for like concert tickets and stuff. Um, and also I think I'm quite like practical about buying like ball gowns. Like I'm just not a yeah. person who buys fancy dress occasion dresses when I, I, I don't have an occasion. Some people like some people do that. Like they really do. Like mm-hmm. they'll just have them in their wardrobe and they'll just see something beautiful and they'll have to have it. But that's not my, my vibe. Um, but you know what? I think it is, a really interesting way or an avenue into examining how things go viral even you know on a surface level against the odds and how fashion definitely isn't about clothes it's in one way 
uniting us. So when something's going viral, everyone's aware of it. Um, remember the blue and black versus white and gold dress? Mm-hmm. That was that was a whole thing. Um, but also the fashion, because nothing in our world is an island. There we're all you know together. Um, the fashion can really highlight other issues. It can highlight uh, fat phobia or socioeconomic disparities or sustainability issues. And I think those are all really important things to talk about. And if this is your avenue into it, I think that's um, really great. Alrighty then, that is another episode of Different Things Gonna Be Sad all wrapped up. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a long one. This, do you think this is a long one, Micah? I think I think so. I haven't been watching. Mm, no, yeah, but I a think little. Anyone who like you know, if you've got to the end of this, you have realized that it is a long one. So yes, cool. Um, Micah, what do you have any plans for the month ahead? Um, yeah, we're going into September, and I am still in school. Um. <gasps> Yes, that her never-ending school. I'm so excited yes. when we get to the podcast episode when you're like done school forever. It's gonna be wild. I don't know if is I can gonna... handle it. Well, um, uh, that could be a long time away. Actually. It could. It could be decades away. Decades um, probably away. Probably not. Um, yeah, podcasting uh, I... has become obsolete, but like we've had to keep it going because <laughs> we just want to see Micah out of school. Yes. Um, no, I uh, school starting again. and I will be making my way back to Montreal so that I can have a, a good and effective and nice semester, um, which I'm, I'm nervous about flying, not fun, but I'm also excited That's about. Fine. So mm. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, I don't have a lot of September plans. I'm um, going upstate for a few days, which should be mm. nice just to get out of the city. The city. Have you seen that uh, TikTok where the guy does like specific words in like the emo pop punk voice that everyone was doing in like the early 2000s? No, that sounds wonderful. We should also post this on the gram. Um, it's very funny, but he basically, he like pronounces the city like the city. And now I just want to <laughs> say like the city every time. Uh, but I will be getting out of the city. And I, I like gave up at the end of that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it should be fun. So I'm excited about that. Um, if people want to, you know, monitor your flight progress yeah that sounds yeah weird. not like you know flight track you but if they if they want to see how you're doing over the month where can they find you online um you can find me on twitter and instagram at atmos clearwater fabulous uh you mm-hmm. can find me at at yasmin lomax on twitter and insta and you can find the podcast at at dtcbs podcast i feel like we've mentioned a lot of potential posts so mm-hmm. you better get excited for them Anyway, until next time. Bye. Bye.